morning. And this morning, before I, I talk a little bit about uh, the commandment that says you shall not covet, I'm going to call Kate DeCroof up from Highway 33. Uh, Kate and her husband, John, have four boys, I believe. Am I right? So sort of the average size of a Creekside family. So Kate has... Uh, I think been part of Willow Park for quite a while, but she has a specific role within Child of Mine, and I know Friday was banquet time, right? Yes. So tell us a little bit about your role in Child of Mine and maybe kind of how the banquet went. Okay. Uh, so as the administrator, <clears throat> um, I get my, uh, put my hand in a bunch of cookie jars. Um, I planned the banquet. Uh, that was yesterday evening, um, which was uh, a great event last night. I'm not sure how many of you from here got to attend, but it was just a really powerful and amazing um, evening where we got to share about our time uh, in India because the lead team went uh, this past October, and so we just talked about the time there, and we just got to build community with... Um, those who attended, and it was just good food, good entertainment, and good stories and laughter, and, and just, uh, yeah, celebrating child of mine. And also, as the administrator, I get to, uh, I just do lots of things, yeah. communications, um, partnerships, um, fundraising, all, everything. I'm, I'm the only paid employee for, for child of mine, and the rest, we have a volunteer lead team, so. Yeah. She also does a lot of shopping. <clears throat> for child of mine, if you ever pop into her office, especially at this time of year, you have to sort of wind through the bags of goodies from India. But, uh, yes. And I think the bank, was it not Friday night? Sorry, yeah, Friday yeah. night, not Saturday night, sorry. Yeah, can't yeah. put that sorry. past me, Kate. Sorry, I tried. I know that you just came back from India mm -hmm. shortly, I don't know, uh, October ago? 31st, okay. I got back. Um, and we know that in those two um, I actually wrote them out, but I'm not. Daryl Fazi? Daryl Fazel. Okay, not even <laughs> close, Doug. And Shanti Nikitan? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Talk a little bit about what amazed you or impressed you about the physical buildings that are there, the structures that are there, because I know we've been building stuff, mm -hmm. and maybe what the biggest need is in terms of facilities. Okay, well, for Shanti Niketan, uh, every October we send a construction team to go over there and to work on the buildings and the, the, the grounds there. It's um, an old leprosy colony, so there's lots of work needed. So just going there and seeing the work um, that was be has been done over the last five years uh, has, was amazing to actually go and see what every construction team has done and the work that James Peters, who's the construction lead, um, that he's coordinated this, he's put it all together, he's made this happen and, and he works from here to communicate back to India to coordinate supplies and logistics and all that and then takes a team and, and puts them to work and organizes all that. So that was the most amazing thing, um, setting foot in Shanti mm. Niketan to see all that's been done there and the greatest need um, out of both the homes would be at Shanty because the, as I said, it's a lep old leprosy colony and the boys' dorm um, is the same building that it's been since it first was built. Mm. So it's um, very old and not structurally sound and, and so that's our biggest goal and 
um, is to build a new boys' dorm. And so we're hoping to um, break ground on that next year. Yeah, um, yeah and start that. And, and Dara Fuzzle is a beautiful property as well. It's yeah. set kind of in a setting like the Okanagan Mountains surrounding it at the bottom of the Himalayas. Um, they grow lots of fruit. Um, yeah, and it's just really, it's really peaceful, the home there too. Okay. Um, and I know there are those in our church, I'm thinking specifically of Wally and Trudy, who have been there, and maybe others. Uh, when you think about the children and the schools and what the, the children need, um, again, I'll ask you what sort of maybe amazed you about the kids, and what would you say is the biggest need for them, for the students? Okay. Um, well, at the homes, the, what amazed me about the kids and just... It's a family there. There's, um, they come from different families. Um, and so they all come together at these homes and just the way they take care of each other as brothers and sisters and how they respect the, the teachers and mm. the directors and the wardens. Um, it's just a, such a loving home of, um, yeah, as one big family. They kind of remind me of like the Duggar family. They all work together getting things done. That's a horrible example, actually. But no, I, I'm applauding. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. It just, just how they, the family dynamics, where they take care of each other, they love on each other, respect, there's full of joy, laughter, they just work together as a, one big unit, and they, yeah, so, and um, the olders take care of the youngers, and the, we, the older kids, um, one of the biggest needs for the children there would be for the older, the older kids, where we actually... Um, help them with their post-secondary education. So we give them the opportunity once they're past, um, class 12 is to go on to take a skill or some form of uh, further education to help them um, help them get uh, go further uh, once they leave the home and they go out uh, into the real world. The homes are kind of sheltered, so once mm. they go out, um, their post-secondary help, helps them to give them a future, to give them an opportunity to thrive and make a living and support themselves. Um, so we pay for them to go through these programs, and at this time there's about 30 that we're supporting to going through post-secondary wow. education. So that's a really great need for us, is to be yeah. able to keep financially supporting them to go through this education. And a lot of them do general nursing and midwifery, um, teaching, there's architecture. Uh, Caleb is going through architecture mm. right now, which is really cool to see. Um, there's a girl that's going through uh, her physical education PE program. Okay. Yeah, so it's a variety of, yeah. of them, a lot of business programs. So okay. this is just a really great need for us to keep giving them that opportunity to thrive and just build a future for themselves. Uh, just when you were talking, I was thinking about kids who leave the homes and go to university. What does that usually mean for them? Like, where do they... Probably uh, a long distance away, though, right? Yeah, so they have to leave the homes and go to Delhi or uh, Chandigarh, um, a few other places where they... Um, it's very different from here, how their post-secondary works. Okay. Um, so they stay kind of at a, in the at the school in a hostel, they call it, and there's a lot of rules around that where they can't actually work while they're at school because mm. they have... Um, there's no opportunity. They just delve into their studies, and they have to be checking in and out with the person who overlooks. The, uh, okay. So okay. it's different than here. Uh, maybe just a few quick questions that you can answer in a few seconds. Okay. Um, if I asked you, what was your best meal? Uh, in patties India? and peanut butter. I oh. know that's weird, but <laughs> they made well, home homemade what? peanut butter. So uh, Darvaza. 
And okay. yeah. I thought it'd be something a bit more exotic than that. Okay. No, I'm, I'm playing Jane, and I, like, I was really <laughs> nervous about getting sick of the deli belly, so I, I kept it simple. <laughs> most amazing sight? Uh, the most amazing sight was the homes. Okay. Just setting foot on the soil in the homes that I've been working for for a year and a half. Scariest moment? So, driving. <laughs> oh. The driving there is, um, is like an amusement park ride. And it's kind of like playing chicken all the time, mm. where you just kind of fit in and out where you can, and you'll pass on the right side, you pass on the left side, you pass on a blind corner, you kind of will come up to a car, and it's whoever will move over first, and you kind of fit in wherever you can, and you're incessant honking to incessant communicate. Honk. Yeah. So wow. that was would be the scariest, and yeah. Happiest moment. Uh, the happiest moment um, at Chantini Caton, we had a 25-year anniversary celebration. Okay. And so at the end of the celebration, we had a huge dance party on the stage. Um, and all the kids, they loved to dance. And it was to techno, bangra, Indian music. And it was a lot of fun. And it was just kind of an aha moment. Like, mm. this is actually happening. I'm in India dancing with the kids on the stage. And it was, I'm here. And it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Okay. Most lasting memory you think you'll take from there? Um, so when I got to stay at Darfuzzl for five days uh, by myself um, after the team had left, mm. and so I got to hang out with Joy, the director of Darfuzzl, and Mommy, who's the um, principal of the Rainbow School there, and just every night I would hang out in their house and we'd drink tea, which is chai, and just talk about what girls talk about, mm. and and cultural differences okay. and just, yeah, hang out and see the kids come in and out as like, it was mom and mom, can I have bus fare to go into, into Manali to go to worship uh, the, or the youth worship night? So okay. it works the way it does there as it does here. It was okay. really cool. If, uh, in terms of child mind, um, if you finish this sentence, if I had one wish for us as a church, it would be, to really embrace Child of Mine as the global initiative's mission that it's okay. been ta was taken on as, that this is, these are our kids, these are our homes. Um, if there wasn't us, there would be none. Hmm. The homes wouldn't exist. Okay. Like we are, um, yeah, we're their supporter, we're their lifeline that breathes into them to survive and, and keep going. And, uh, and we are making such a difference hmm. to them. And okay. I really got to experience that firsthand and really see that. Yeah, they're our family across the other side of the world, yeah. and they think of us the same way. They always, we're always in their prayers. Um, they're always thankful. They're just, yeah, they really appreciate us and, okay. and love us. So, yeah. You know, I just want to take a moment to pray. I just want to say that I know some of you already support a child of mine, but if, uh, you know, if, if it's on your heart to do that, uh, you could certainly talk with Kate, and uh, she'd be happy to to share opportunities there, but I just want to pray for a child of mine. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that we in North America who do have so much have an opportunity to pour into the lives of those who have so little. And yet, God, we know that just from the stories of the homes in India, there is such joy in the hearts of these children and even in the staff. And Father, it's a joy that comes from celebrating the sufficiency of God in their life. But Father, I believe that uh, sometimes we think of our neighbors as those that we live beside, but our neighbors are also those 
who simply are in need. And so, Father, I ask that you oversee, child of mine, that your hand of blessing rests upon the people. Thank you for those who volunteer. I thank you for the work that Kate does. And, Father, we may, be, may we be as good stewards of our time and our money. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Actually, I'll keep that. I told Judson I'd put it back where I found it, so. This morning, I want to talk a little bit about the commandment that says to us as a church, as to people, that uh, we're not supposed to covet. And as I was thinking about this over the last couple of weeks, I, I thought about what it actually means to covet. What does the word actually mean? And the Bible at times uses words such as coveting, envy, uh, jealousy, in the same passage or often within the same context. But I think for us to understand what it means to covet, we need to understand that the significance of the word, the depth of emotion that's probably within that word. That coveting describes a deep longing, a deep desire for something. I know one translation, I think, replaces the word coveting with the word to crave in order to capture the intensity of what the word means. Now, the word covet, we don't necessarily always use it in a negative form. In fact, we sometimes use it by saying we covet the prayers of God's people. We covet your thoughts. So it can have a positive aspect to it, but generally in the Bible, it is used to describe what I would call an inordinate preoccupation for things that don't belong to me, but do belong to someone else. So things like homes, vehicles, maybe somebody else's family looks so much better than mine, possessions somebody's retirement plan or investment portfolio. Things that you see in someone else's life and crave for your own. And I want to say that if coveting, and this is maybe my definition, is focused on things that other people have, the word envy, I think, generally talks about attention being focused on the person who has those things. So that coveting can lead to envy, which unchecked can lead to strife, conflict, malice, adultery, and even murder. In James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, and James is speaking to the church, he says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and even kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. 
the next verse I think is absolutely critical this morning. James says, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. The commandment in Exodus 20, 17 says this, you must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey. Now, when I was reading that the first time, I thought, well, you know, we don't really relate to male and female servants in our culture. We don't really relate to oxes and donkeys. But within that culture, probably the number of servants you had or the number of livestock that you owned was probably a significant indication of your wealth. But I like it the way the commandment finishes in case anything might be left out in the list, he says, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And I want to say it's not wrong to notice what your neighbor has or even at times to go, wow. Or you might think, you know, I would kind of enjoy driving that RV. But the commandment is, a, is to us to guard our heart against what it means to actually covet. And I think to covet means we've crossed the line from seeing with our eyes to desiring with our heart. The Bible speaks against coveting and often, I think, offers the potential to experience exactly the opposite. If coveting is attached to the things of this world, contentment is a treasure within the kingdom of God. And although they're not opposites, when I thought about if I was to replace coveting within the context of what it means as a Christian, I believe the word contentment would fit. It's a place of inner peace. It's an it is well with my soul attitude to life. John, 1 John 2 verse 16, John says, For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. In fact, I would say these cravings reflect the mantra that drives the world we live in. Some have paraphrased that verse by saying, the verse talks about three things, sex, money, and power and influence. And that if you have those three within the context of how our world operates, you should have it made. Truth is, we all enjoy physical pleasure. We tend to enjoy the things that we own. And we all exhibit pride in some form. But none of these should be the driving force in our life or determine how we see ourselves. And I want to say that whether you're driven by one of these or all three, they reflect attitudes that the world holds dear. But the Bible says they're not from the Father. 
And the degree to which they control my life is the degree to which I may lack contentment that God offers us in Jesus Christ. There is a Coles Notes version to all of the commandments. Romans 13, verse 9, and many of you will know this. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I want to say if we truly love our neighbor, I think the implication is that these commandments will actually take care of themselves. But loving our neighbor is often a challenge for us. And as I was thinking about this over the last two weeks, one of the dangers in coveting the things that other people own is that who my neighbor is becomes secondary almost to what they have. And I may miss the fact that my neighbor is a person made in the image of God. And to assume that my neighbor's affluence is the measure of who he or she is, is false. And I at times am guilty of doing this. I have a neighbor who has literally poured tens of thousands of dollars into his house and property over the, about the last six months, maybe a year, ever since he bought. He's built garages to hold the things that he owns. He's taken out a whole pile of grass to park the other vehicles that still don't fit in the garage. And when I think of most of my conversations with my neighbor, I have to admit it often focuses on the stuff that he has. And I believe God was saying to me as I was preparing for this, and he may say it to all of us, he said, Doug, get your eyes off your neighbor's stuff. Even if you don't covet them, get your eyes off his possessions and you'll begin to see your neighbor, him or her, as God sees them. If coveting somehow distorts how I may view my own neighbor, what does it say about me? And I believe to covet what my neighbor has points to, I'm going to call it discontent in my own life. Discontent with what I have or maybe discontent with who I am. And I think coveting leads or speaks to a deep sense of unhappiness about my own lot in life. That somehow, if I had what that person had, or, or if I have what they have, then things would be good. And even though at a deep level we know it's not true, it's a tendency or a mindset in North America we need to fight. I think 90% of all advertisements feed this sense of false fulfillment. When James said, and I read this verse before, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. He is not teaching or preaching a prosperity 
gospel. It's not a prosperity message. To believe that it is God's will for our lives, for all of us, to prosper materially, I think is false doctrine and false teaching. Yet there are those who will say that. And as I thought about that this week, I thought about what about those who identify across the world in the persecuted church? If we were to ask them, does material affluence characterize your life? And they would probably laugh at us and they would say it has no significance. What's significant in the life of the persecuted church is their connection with God. James is saying, I think, exactly the opposite about when we don't have what we want because we don't ask for it. I think he's offering us something entirely different. I think every one of us, deep down, craves a sense of contentment, something deep and satisfying within our soul, something independent of anything the world can offer and something that the world cannot take away. We long for a place where we truly can say, you know what, peace like a river attends my soul. In all things, through all things, peace like a river attends my soul. In Philippians 4, 11 and 12, Paul is talking to uh, people he would know well within the church. And Paul often had Christians who helped him in his ministry, helped him, you know, probably with things like food and maybe whatever money looked like at that time. And he says, how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. And I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I know that verse, I've read that verse many times, but as I was thinking about it the last little while, what struck me about it is that this secret, even for Paul, did not come gift-wrapped with his calling. That Paul says he had to learn how to be content. He had to learn the secret of living. That even Paul had to learn what it truly meant to rely on the provision of God. And you might well say, Doug, that was Paul. His calling was unique, which it was. You might say, well, Doug, you know, Paul wasn't married. He didn't have to think about providing for his family, which is also true. But the secret that Paul found was his complete reliance, trust, and faith in the sufficiency of God in his life. And Paul would state to you and me this morning here at Creekside that we too have that treasure that Christ himself 
fills these jars of clay, and there are many Christians within Creekside, within Willow Park, who truly walk and experience that deep sense of assurance that God, that God is their sustainer and their provider. Sometimes in our affluent society, it's hard to know. And when I use that term, I sometimes think about many people within North America who say, Doug, the minute you say affluent, you're not talking about me. That there are many even within North America for whom life is a struggle. But I sometimes wonder, someone would say to me, well, Doug, is your security, is your peace, is your contentment, is it truly in God? Or is it actually wrapped up in the security of my pension plan, my job, my portfolio? I don't have a portfolio, so I can't relate to that one, but I want to say we may never really know the extent to which we completely rely on God unless God was to remove the trappings of our life. But I think it's a question worth asking. God, are you my all in all? While living in Vancouver um, a short while ago in our about 300 square foot apartment, I found myself on occasion asking in Vancouver, so Doug, if this was what your life was, it's 300 square feet, ability to walk to the store and, and purchase whatever we needed to, to eat, would you be okay? And I want to say the answer of my heart to God was yes. I would still be okay. I would still be able to say, God, it's well with my soul. And I don't want to pretend that I'm asking God to remove from my life everything I don't need, but I f- believe it is the sweet assurance that God through Jesus Christ offers us. I had the same question while lying in the hospital room. God, if things, if things take a turn for the worse, are you okay? And my response was still, yes, God, you know what? It's okay. It's not what I want, but it would be okay because I rest in you. It's my heavenly father. I spent about two hours with uh, with Barry uh, yesterday morning. Uh, it may it may have been one of the most um, amazing uh, times in my life. Uh, Barry has been in the hospital now for twenty three days. Initially, he thought. After 10, he would be back home. Uh, Barry's had to struggle with, you know, being a bit disappointed, um, feeling a bit downcast that he was still where he was, and he still has a long way to go. But when we were talking in the, in the hospital, uh, he said, Doug, um, can we go someplace else to talk? So we did, and he, 
he's uh, unable to to walk really on his own, at, at least not a great distance. So uh, he was in a wheelchair, and uh, we went first down to the lobby, and then he said, Doug, can we go to the chapel? And we spent um, a significant amount of time there. And I knew there were things that he wanted to say to me, and I, I pray that God one day will allow Barry to come up here and speak. I just want to say that Barry said to me, I would not replace the last five days in the hospital for anything in the world. That there is an incredible, amazing restoration of Barry's soul. And Barry said to me, Doug, I needed to be here for that to happen. It was such an incredible time and I, as I say, I pray that the time will come when Barry can speak and share more of what he said with me. I think Barry is speaking to exactly what it means to find contentment in the loving arms of your Heavenly Father. That we hold in these jars of clay an incredible treasure. We hold incredible wealth. Christ in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Bible said there's contentment to be found there. There's a verse that Jesus spoke. Randy, I'm jumping ahead here a little bit. And it spoke directly to me and I think into the heart of this commandment, do not covet. The verse kind of said to me at least, Doug, what are you focused on? What are you looking at? What thoughts occupy your mind? In Luke 11, verse 34, Jesus says, your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, when it's clear, when it's in focus, your entire body is filled with light. But when it is bad, blurry, lacking focus, your body can be filled with darkness. And if my vision is blurred and has lost focus, you know what, I think I've likely wandered into the arena of coveting what I don't have or what doesn't belong to me. And I'll experience a distorted, blurred, and unfulfilled life. But if my eye is good, I'll begin to see my neighbor for who he or she is. And I will embrace the truth that the living God is my portion. I will find contentment. I will find peace in Christ my Lord. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, you know what? Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he has done. And then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we could understand. Barry is experiencing exactly what that verse says. And his peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. As I close, I want to ask the question, how is contentment demonstrated in the life of a Christian? What does it look like in 
in my life? What should contentment look like? And I'll be very quick. Number one, I think contentment is expressed in a life that has a deep sense of inner peace. A life that truly demonstrates, you know, it is well with my soul. Secondly, contentment is expressed, I believe, in a life that continually gives thanks to God in all things. A heart overwhelmed with thanksgiving for the grace and mercy and love of God that extends to me a sinner every day. And thirdly, especially within the context of those of us maybe who have certainly more than we need, I believe contentment will be demonstrated by generosity. Generous living, generous giving. When a, I think it was a lawyer in the Bible that asked Jesus about how to inherit eternal life. And Jesus asked him whether he knew the commandments. And the man said, yes. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, you are right. Do that, and you will live. And the lawyer, probably trying to be a bit legal, said, well, who, who is my neighbor? And it's interesting that Jesus then told the story about the traveler who was beaten, he was robbed, left at the side of the road. Two religious people walked on by, did not offer to help. A very ordinary citizen stopped and helped him, took care of him, took care of his wounds, took him to care and said, you know what, whatever else he needs, let me know, I'll take care of it. And Jesus asked this man, so who is, who is this man's neighbor? And the lawyer says, well, the person who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do the same. As I thought about that, I thought, you know, when I look at my neighbor, and maybe I'll say for me, maybe that neighbor who has uh, put a lot of money into what he has, and then I'm drawn to what he or she might possess. I think Jesus this morning would say to us, he would say to me, Doug, you're looking at the wrong neighbor. This morning as Kate was talking to us about the people, the children who work in, in northern India. I'd say that Jesus would remind us this morning that we, although we are thousands of miles away, can be their neighbor. Jesus himself, when he saw the multitudes, he said he was moved to compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. My prayer for myself and my prayer for us as a church is that we would continue to learn what it means to experience the peace of God, to live contented lives because we truly rest in the presence of God in our life. My prayers are our lives would overflow with thanksgiving for what God has done for us and that would motivate us to be generous people.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to give you thanks for your presence in your church here this morning. I thank you, Father, for the freedom we have to lift your name in praise and worship. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word that's able to speak into our hearts and minds and quite literally change who we are. At times, God changed how we think. And Father, we want to take time this morning to celebrate around communion to say thank you for the great love that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. We are far from perfect people. And yet, Father, you welcome us to this table as a family, as a family of God, those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So, Father, we lift you up this morning and we thank you. Continue to teach us what it means to live for you, what it means to live with the presence of the living God guiding us each day. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.